Welcome to Unicorny, the antidote to post-rationalized business books. I'm your host, Dom Hawes, and this is a podcast about the practice of marketing, how it creates value, who's doing it well, and how marketing helps businesses win the future. Last week, we spoke to Charlotte Lander from Standard Chartered Bank about how leaders like you are expected to have a professional social media presence. Today's culture and societal expectation is that leaders cultivate their personal brand as a human expression of the businesses they work for. Now, we all know about the importance of thought leadership. It's been one of the principal tactics of communications agencies for decades and decades. You know, when I was cutting my own teeth in this business in the mid-90s, we used to sell thought leadership. It's not new. But back then, we had far fewer owned media opportunities, by which I mean we were either at the mercy of journalists to print our opinion pieces, or we had to pay to print and post papers. It was only the super senior execs, therefore, that were put on a pedestal to promote and position their business. Then, in the early noughties, something fundamental changed. And that's where today's guest had his epiphany that led him to write his first book. Now, I read that book in around 2012 or 2013, and I've read all of his published works since. He is, in my opinion, the leading thinker in this country and beyond on the subject of entrepreneurialism. Today, we're all expected to bring an entrepreneurial attitude and a personal brand to work. It's our added value. As a marketer, you are your business's internal entrepreneur. So pin your ears back and get ready to meet Daniel Priestley, author of Key Person of Influence, 24 Assets, Oversubscribed, Entrepreneur Revolution, and Scorecard. Now, I think his observations and intuition are going to blow you away. We had such a good talk that I've split our conversation now into two parts to make them easier to digest. We're going to publish them across two weeks on the main podcast platforms. But if you do want to follow straight on with part two, you're going to find it ungated on the blog at unicorny.co.uk. And we've linked that in the show notes. Broadly today, we're going to talk to Daniel about his book, Key Person of Influence, KPI as it's known. And it's about how you establish yourself or your colleagues as business influencers. We cover a lot more too, but that's the main thrust. Then in week two or part two, we talk about his book, 24 Assets, which is more about how you develop the digital assets your business needs to win the future. And he also saves a proper mind fry that frames the importance of everything we discuss, but he does it right at the end of part two. This is how my conversation with Daniel Priestley went down. Although we've never met, I feel I've known you for years, Daniel, because I've followed your work since you first published Key Person of Influence, and I've learned loads from that book and actually the others you've written. Now, we're going to come back to those later today, but why don't you first give us a brief overview of your backstory? Sure. I'm an entrepreneur and author. I started my first company 20-something years ago when I was 21 years old uh, in Australia. You can hear I've got a bit of an Australian twang. Um, And I've built and sold several different companies uh, over the last 20 years and written, I think, four books and co-authored four books as well and um, passionate about entrepreneurship, business growth, trends, all of those sorts of things. I'm a father of three little kids, uh, live here in London. At the moment, I've got a group of eight companies that I run. Um, so we've got a tech company that's a very fast growth tech company. We've got one of the biggest publishers in the UK. 
um, a really significant training accelerator business that is global. Um, we've had four and a half thousand companies come through our, our, our accelerator program, which is a year long program. And uh, yeah, there's uh, some other businesses in there as well. So I guess you could say I'm all things entrepreneurship, uh, up to my elbows in entrepreneurs and fast growth and strategy and all of yeah. that sort of stuff. Perfect. Right. Key Person of Influence, or KPI as it's known, was your first book. And I think you wrote that in 2009, didn't you? Yeah. You say, yeah, and first published in 2010. So it's written 15 years ago, mm. but it, was, it, it, it struck me that that was written in exactly the same kind of financial downturn oh, that we're now experiencing. Yeah, it was, a, it was one heck of a downturn, yeah. This time around, it's hard. It's not, I don't think it's as bad as then. Like this has been, I think most businesses are experiencing a gentle descent. They're not experiencing the kind of free fall that we did. In 2008, in 2009. But the thinking that led to and the experience mm. that led to that content is so relevant now. And, um, and so we're going to talk today about principally, I think, two pieces of your work, KPI and uh, 24 Assets. We may bring some others in, but we'll see how we go. Let's start at the beginning with KPI. I'm going to just talk about some of the key concepts that you talk about in the beginning of the book. And I'm more interested, I guess, to hear about how you think rather than necessarily specifically the content of the book. Mm-hmm. That was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. You've done a hell of a lot since then. Um, <laughs> yeah. What led you to write the book? key person of influence. I'll quickly set the scene. So around that time, Barack Obama had run the 2008 Obama campaign and he had done something significant that no one had done before, which was he'd really gotten himself into social media in a big way. And he had this campaign called Obama Everywhere where you could connect with him on Twitter and you could connect with him on um, YouTube and all of this. And I started piecing bits of puzzle pieces together around that time. So the Obama thing was very significant because everyone at that moment had a shift in their thinking from this is a silly thing that teenagers do to this is a serious tool, right? So that was the the first sort of moment. I was already aware that presidential elections are really good predictors of big trends. So if you go back right back to, I think it was, um, might have been Roosevelt or so, anyway, I'll have to, it'll come to me, but did the fireside chats. And that was the first time national radio had been used in a US presidential election. And it signified the shift from print to radio. And then 60 was the Nixon versus um, JFK debate. And that was a live televised debate. And JFK won it. And that was the significant moment where television overtook radio. These kind of like moments where these things happen. And Obama everywhere with his social media campaign signified that we were going into the social media age. So that happened. Now, what was interesting about my background uh, relevant to that is I'd spent 10 years working with celebrities and authors and professional speakers, and I knew their business model really well, like behind the scenes, you know, that was my whole world. And I knew how they built their personal brands. I knew how they monetized their personal brands. I knew how they leveraged their personal brands. All of that sort of stuff was my whole wheelhouse, my background. And I kind of had this epiphany moment where I went, everyone's going to do this. Like everyone is going to use these tools to build a personal brand. They're going to have to build that and it's going to be important and you won't be able to survive without it. The magic is in building this personal brand and look at the influence and impact that you can have with this. And there's no gatekeeper. Anyone can do it. So that was kind of like the epiphany moment. I'm like, I'm just going to write what I know, which is the business model of these celebrities, authors, speakers, and I'm just going to kind of get that out there. At that time, I was probably following a couple of those celebrity speakers and I was fascinated by that kind of build a herd and then monetize their mm. model. It's not so different, of course, than the commercial world where you build a customer base and then you know try to satisfy demand. 
But there's some good observations, I think. So the, uh, firstly, I think that's an extraordinary observation that presidential elections are a predictor of, of what's to come. I Fast promise. forward to 2016, and we had this issue with Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. Uh, and Cambridge Analytica was with Trump and Brexit. And what they did is, is like full-on data analytics. And since then has been a massive transformation in yeah. marketing to data analytics, yeah. where marketing is, you know, has data analytics at its absolute core. And it's interesting that that election signified the data analytics movement had begun. And what are we going to see in the next presidential election? We're going to see the influence of AI. AI, yeah. So yeah. the 2024 election is yeah. going to be the AI. Think of US presidential elections as like the Formula One of, <laughs> uh, of marketing. Exactly. Where the road test what's coming Big next. Big budgets, yeah. high stakes, yeah. cutthroat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they road test new tech. So vitality in a person. Vitality is much more important than functionality. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So in the industrial age, we needed people to be functional. Um, so think about um, this idea of component labor. Component labor is that you can basically get trained up in a set of skills and then plug those skills into a industrial workforce. And normally it's local geography. So you go to school in a local geography, you then come out of school and then somewhere within a few miles, you join a workforce and your skills plug into that. It's all about functionality. What's happening more and more as we progress is that the functional work is automated by technology. And as we go into this AI revolution, yeah. it's going to be game over for function. Human functionality is losing its value very rapidly. So the best doctor you've ever met is an AI. Uh, the best lawyer you've ever met will be an AI. The best accountant and auditor will be AI-led. Um, the best coder and developer, um, I hate to say it, but even marketing people are going to oh, get... I have, a, I have a theory about this. <laughs> okay. I have a theory about this. Well, I'll come back to it. So, so a lot of the functionality is going to be completely yeah. automated. So then vitality is what humans are actually naturally pretty good at. In fact, we beat it out of the kids in school, and that is the ability to disrupt and be humorous and attention-seek and form coalitions and enroll yeah. people in ideas. So the word vitality has two meanings uh, in the dictionary, which is uh, life force, and irreplaceable. So if you're vital, you're irreplaceable. Yeah. If you're vital, you're a life force. So you're the irreplaceable life force. So if you think, well, what is the irreplaceable life force work that needs to be done? And that is the work that humans are doing uh, in, in the future. That is the difference between a key person of influence. They're doing the work of an irreplaceable life force for the business or the organization. They're bringing something to life. And it's an important distinction that it's not a replaceable functional component it's something that energizes the whole. I get that. And I totally buy into it, by the way. So my theory is that the people who are most vulnerable to AI are the most productive people because the functional you're talking about needs people who are very dedicated and very productive. If you're a lazy marketer like me who likes ideas and doing mad things, AI ain't going to replace it anytime soon. So I think lazy people are probably a little bit safer. I say lazy in inverted mm, commas, mm -hmm. you know, like- yeah, I think yeah. you're onto something because a doctor is someone who's repeated something over and over or, or there's a functionality has a lot of repetition to it and vitality has a lot of freshness and newness to it. So I think what you're saying is that if you're lazy, quote unquote, you're leaving space for vitality. You're leaving space yeah. for energy. Yeah. You know, that, that human intuition, that creativity. Um, it's hard to say, right? So I get the hunch. It's hard to say because AI tends to have some pretty good intuition as well. Like it's quite amazing some of the things it comes out with. It's doing some good art. It's doing it, some good it music. Is. And it's and it's only it's, it's the worst it's ever going to be right now. Right this minute, yeah, yeah today. It's <laughs> scary. But from the point of a key person of influence and trying to build a personal brand, I get that, you know, function is not important. Vitality is. Mm. 
Which brings us on to, I think it sort of dovetails with one of the other observations that you had. And bear in mind, this is written 15 years ago. I think part of it's enabled by the digital revolution, but you had a heading in there saying a career is old technology. And I just loved that so much. And and never more prescient than literally right now in post-COVID where Mm. if someone doesn't like a job, they just leave. In fact, they don't even worry about it. I really dislike job titles. Mm. I think they put people in boxes. They're very functional, Mm -hmm. I think. And I much prefer to think in terms of roles, like Mm -hmm. how are you helping? What are you doing? How are you helping add value? And I've always said I want people to bring more than their time to work. If all you're doing is bringing Mm -hmm. time to work, I can replace that in offshore or AI or I can automate it. So I want people to come to work with a personal Mm. brand because that's the value add. When you were writing that 15 years ago that like career is an old technology, did you see that kind of digital native piece coming? Well, I was imagining it as almost the Hollywood model. So the Hollywood model is that we all get together, we make a film and then we go our separate ways and then you are signed to a new project and you say, oh, I've worked with Daniel before, he's good, so let's bring him into this project. And the teams form and complete a project and then they disintegrate and then they reform around different projects and they disintegrate. And who gets to be on the team? It's the people who've got great personal brands. So, you know, we, oh, we need Spielberg for that, right? Oh, that's yeah. a that's a movie about um, deep sea something. We need James Cameron, <laughs> right? So, um, so people get used to the idea that there's these personal brands and they all start working together. Ultimately, you think about it like there's a talent pool and then there's projects that spring up and the most appropriate talent uh, gets brought into the, the project. What we now see with Uber is a really good example of, of this. So there's a talent pool. Think of it as a talent pool of drivers and they're just circling around London. And then a new project arises and a piece of technology says, oh, I wonder who would be the most appropriate person to assign to this. Uh, oh, so-and-so is four minutes away. So let's yeah. send them over there. So that person forms around that project and then they complete that project and then they go back to the talent pool. And then the computer algorithm says, oh, wait a second, I think there's another project that you should be on. And they actually build a personal brand. And what I mean by that is how many stars have they gotten? How is their car rated? How's their service rated? So they end up building up a um, quantifiable brand. Now, I personally think where we're going is an, is even further beyond that. So the old mindset around companies, organizations, is that they look like pyramids and that a career path is essentially grinding it out and spending a lot of time to work your way up the pyramid yep. as people drop off the sides yep. or something like that. You get to move on up. So that model is a piece of technology that humans invented, which is a good piece of technology if you don't have any other software systems that could help. Right, So it's kind of like, well, how do we judge where you fit in the hierarchy? How long have you been around? And how many advocates have you got? How much grinding it out have you got? And it's very intuitive based and it's based on kind of hierarchy of um, tribes and all of that. Now, imagine a different way of thinking about the workforce. Imagine that an organization is pinned between an origin story, a history, a set of values that it has and a history that it has and a vision of where it sees itself in the future. And in the middle is this steel thread of missions, these things that have to happen. And what happens is a talent pool jumps up, forms around a mission, completes the mission, jumps back in the talent pool, jumps up, completes a mission, goes back in the talent pool. And this just goes on and on and on. And that talent pool may work for multiple organisations, but an organisation is not a pyramid of people. It's a vision, a mission and an origin story. And people, they contextualise 
where they fit within those points and then they come together to complete missions and then they go back into the talent pool. Um, and I, I see that as being a much more realistic view of the future. Yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, I don't think the driver for more businesses adopting this kind of approach is necessarily the business itself. I mean, like, of course, business wants to be more flexible and agile, especially during times of uncertainty when sales are a lot more volatile. But we're also living through a time of cultural change too. And the ambitions and expectations of the people who do the work in businesses are changing. Where a colleague understands and can project their vitality for business, they've got a much bigger say in how the engagement works. If careers are old technology, so are employment contracts. Mm. In the book, you advise, and I think in your training, you advise people to niche down to find a very highly specific thing they can dominate. Technology was sort of the enabler that allowed people to do that niching down. Can you explain a little bit of the thinking around about why yeah. that happened? And, and <laughs> like, is that accelerating now post-COVID? We've always existed within niches, but the default niche is geographical closeness. So if I wanted to stand out as an accountant for most of the last couple of hundred years, I'd just be the local accountant, the person down the road. So my niche is that I'm in Wimbledon, right? And, and that immediately gives me an advantage over someone who is in Putney and even more so over someone in Fulham, right? Because I'm just that little bit closer. So these are geographical niches. And for most of human history, we like the idea of being a local champion, local club champion, you know, the local, the local butcher baker, candlestick maker. So we all already know how this works when there's geography. The thing that technology does, digital technology, is it changes some fundamental things about how society is organised. So for starters, it removes geography. Anything that's digital is everywhere all at once. Um, it also gets rid of wear and tear, right? So anything that's digital can be accessed millions and millions of times and lose no quality. It also gets rid of the need for synchronicity. Anything that's digital will be available now, tomorrow, in 10 years, um, and it'll be exactly the same. So time, wear and tear and geographical boundaries get lifted. So therefore, you have to ask the question, well, how do we organise ourselves? Well, we organise ourselves based on niches, values, purpose, vision, mission, origin story. These types of things, these intangible assets become the defining marks. Um, now, some people hate the word niche or niche if they were in yeah. the US. Here's a better word or another word that most people find more palatable. Think about it as just a campaign. Yep. So a campaign is like if you think, you know, when Nike launched, they launched with a campaign for running shoes and they were very focused on running shoes. As soon as they did that, they went into tennis shoes and then they went into basketball shoes and then they went into all sorts of other things. So these are just campaigns. They're campaigning to say that they're good at this thing. You know, you get someone like Simon Sinek who campaigns for start with why, and he becomes the start with why guy. And then he campaigns for leaders eat last. And he campaigns for this servant leadership model. And he's really just on a campaign that lasts several years around start with why. And then he morphs into an additional campaign. And that is still his personal brand. People accept that. They, they think of it as a logical conclusion or a logical extension. Um, so we're just campaigning. We're essentially putting a flag up and saying, hey, I'm really good at this yeah. particular thing. I'm, 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 I'm focused on it. I'm passionate about it. Boy, how good is this stuff? Wow, I'm knackered. Let's take a short break to recap what we have heard. Now, I don't think I've met anyone who has a better understanding of the entrepreneurial mindset. And it's that mindset that makes most marketers the people they are. We opened the show talking about vitality, being the person that 
brings irreplaceable life force to work. It's a bit of a tongue twister, that, but doesn't it sound like what you have to do each and every day? I think it does. I think you are a key person of influence in your business. We also touched on the Hollywood model, where teams are assembled around tasks and then dissolved when they're done. That kind of sounds like the client agency relationship under a master service agreement to me. Well, sort of. Right now, one of the ways you're transforming your department to deliver more for less is probably reducing the fixed nature of your talent pool. But I know we certainly are looking to increase our own flexibility to handle the volatility we're seeing in sales. So Daniel's view on the career being outdated technology is extremely prescient. And I don't think we've even yet seen the beginning of this idea because it's pretty easy to see that as the commercial pressures on all of us tighten, we're going to keep reducing the fixed overhead. So getting ahead of the curve and thinking about more flexible resourcing now, that kind of makes sense. We also talked about the importance of niching down or the idea that you can campaign your thought leadership to establish yourself as a key person of influence. Now, the concept of campaigning, of course, won't be lost on you because mm, it's what you do. But how do you pick the content matter for your first campaign? Well, I was speaking earlier this week to another future guest for Unicorny, the amazing Jeffrey Moore, international technology marketing guru. And we were talking actually about, well, a slightly different subject, but, but the answer is the same. You niche down. Now, I'm sure you're going to know his bowling alley concept from Crossing the Chasm, the concept of which is you start out in one very specific market, which he calls a beachhead. Once you've dominated that market, you then look to the next two markets. And he uses the bowling pin analogy because your beachhead, if you like, is the lead pin of a bowling pin setup at your 10 bowling lane. And then once you've dominated that, you move on to the next pins the pyramid, if you like. So one is selling new products to an existing market and the other is selling the same product to a new but connected market. Now, the bowling alley in this instance reminds us that owning territory, whether that be ideological and opinion or physical, starts by owning a small territory and then growing out from there. So you need to niche down to become the expert in a small territory and then grow your platform out from there. Coming up, we're going to look in a little bit more detail at the playbook Daniel uses to create key persons of influence. It is your playbook for re-establishing your vitality with your peers. But first, I asked Daniel whether he thought the right starting niche for marketers who want to become a KPI was the niche their business is already trying to dominate. Here's what he said. It shouldn't feel like something you get stuck on. Um, it's not like you're cementing your feet to this particular square. Yeah. I think the reason people like the word campaigning rather than niching is niching feels like you're stuck. Yeah. Campaigning feels like you're on the move. I think of it as having a very clear couple of next steps and yeah. getting known for something and then broadening that out. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the other interesting things about, about you know, niching or niche market is particularly for entrepreneurs that aren't necessarily versed in the concept. It's like, but what about everything else? I can't say no to it. Whereas campaigning, I think, 
gives the impression that you're after that but if something else comes in through the side door yeah. hey we'll take it thank yeah. you very yeah, much we might we might be yeah. open to <laughs> yeah so let's go on to look at the method uh, um, a little bit there's a five-stage method that you outline in the book the first of which is the pitch mm. um, and it being really important to be able to understand and articulate talk to me some more about about the process of working out what your pitch is going to be so let's talk about well let's talk about a few things first if you're an executive or a leader you really need to understand why the hell are you going to build a personal brand at all? I'll just quickly, okay. I quickly cover this because a lot of leaders think of this as a colossal waste of time. Um, and they're, they're sort of saying, well, what objectives does it meet? The, the big objectives for a business leader is the ability to acquire talent, right? Talented people want to work with a key person of influence. And, you know, the reason that you might go and join Iris Software is because you really like the blogs written by the CEO alone. Yeah. And you go, okay, yeah, I might not see her very often, but I want to be part of that organization. Yeah. Right. So it's the it's the accessing talent. Um, the next one would be capital. So investors get excited about key people of influence. That person who's got a trusted brand, um, they've got a reputation to uphold. Um, investors love that. They flock around yeah. that. And then speed to market is the kind of the other side, which we've been talking about, which is getting things out to market. But it's not just speed to market. Um, speed to market's important, but there's those other two things that, that are there as well. But a good, great example of speed to market is you take someone like Elon Musk who says, hey, we're going to do this Cybertruck. It's three years away, but if you want to put down a $100 deposit, you can reserve one. And everyone wets their <laughs> pants and says, okay, great, I'll, I'll yeah. count me in. So that is speed to market. Like how, what other car company could sell a million cars that don't exist? Yeah. It's the personal brand that is yeah. the glue that makes that happen. So the first thing is I, I want to kind of make sure that anyone listening is enrolled in this idea that this is not some waste of time. This is, you know, this is getting your most um, important objectives met in very real ways at, at speed um, with less hassle and less consultants and less, yeah, <laughs> yeah. less spend. Um, so the first step in the method is, is constructing a great pitch. There's a few things about pitching that are important. Number one, you want to uh, start enrolling people into new ideas, new ways of behaving. So a pitch is about enrollment. It's about getting someone who woke up this morning not thinking about this particular thing to go to bed at night thinking about it. That's what a pitch is about. Okay. You think back to those days where you might have seen Steve Jobs introduce the iPhone and you woke up that morning not knowing what an iPhone was and you went to bed that night thinking, I've got to have one, right? <laughs> Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember yeah. it well. Um, so that's a great pitch. Uh, you also might have heard a business leader talking about a trend and you go, oh, wow, I'd never thought about it like that. I want to be part of that trend. So they've, in some way they've enrolled you in something. They've gotten you thinking differently about something. And every, ever so often you just get these people who, who have that power. Uh, I heard one recently, um, a guy called James who runs Client Earth and it's a law firm dedicated to protecting the environment. And he talks about the power of the legal system to protect environments and, and to actually to, that you can sue on behalf of the forest and you can sue on behalf of the ocean. And it was like, wow, that's really cool. And I suddenly wanted to raise money for Client Earth and I bought 200 copies of the book and I gave them to people I knew and all this sort of stuff. So here I was not thinking at all about legal rights of the environment and then I hear his pitch and I go, oh, I, I want to yeah. buy 200 copies of the book and give it away. So the first part is about enrollment. In what are you enrolling people in? So you've got to make a decision. What ideas and behaviours do I want people to change? How do I want people to think different? How do yeah. I want them to behave different? The second part of pitching is to, is it, it's to groups. So you might be good at enrolling people one-to-one, 
but you need to start thinking, how do I do this with groups? How do I do 250 people at a time? How do I do a thousand people at a time? How do I get a million people at a time? So I was on a podcast with this guy called Ali Abdal. In the first few months, like a million people watched this. So it's two hours of my time. Yeah. And a million people watch it yeah. and I get flooded with all these people who have changed their mind on yeah, yeah. entrepreneurship. So that is this ability to change people's minds at scale. Yeah. So you're thinking about how do I pitch to groups? If we think about like a typical year has 250 work days, if you were to talk to four brand new people every single day, which would be pretty hard to do, one to one, you'd only get to a thousand people in a year. Whereas you could be on one stage and be in front of a thousand people. You could be on one podcast and be in front of a thousand people. So, you know, you need to be able to do this, not just enrollment of new ideas and behavior, but doing that to groups. That's the first thing you need to figure out. So funny you should mention scale because just this morning on the way in, one of your posts popped into my feed on LinkedIn and you were on stage at an event in front of 1,500 people Mm. talking about Score App. Mm. And I listened to your pitch through my earbuds. And when I got to work, I sent Nicola, our producer, a link to that LinkedIn saying... You need to see this. We could use this for the podcast. There you go. That's the example. Well, there were 1,500 people in the audience. I'm pretty sure none of them woke up that that morning saying, I need to get a a scorecard campaign set up. And by the end of that day, 400 had already set up their first campaign. Wow. So that was great. And then I put it on video and put it on what you saw on LinkedIn. I think 20,000 people have watched it today. Have they really? Yeah, and I (laughs) think a few hundred people have actually already set up a campaign off the back of it. This is the idea of pitching to groups, enrolling people in new ideas and getting out to groups. Personally, you know, I understand the importance of having that kind of influence and certainly in my Mm. role I should be. But finding that pitch... And I think understanding the difference between it's not about what you're saying to an individual. You've got to have something that's going to change people's minds at scale. Yeah, well, because this is the thing. You, if you're talking to an individual, you can ask them questions and you yeah. can find out what their hot buttons are. Yeah. The difference with pitching is if you're pitching to a group, you've got yeah. to figure out universal hot buttons. Yeah. And that's what allows you to scale. Right? Yeah, that yeah, does. Cool. Yeah. So, so what, what else is there? They're all P's, I think. They're all they? P's. Yeah. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. The next one's publish. So yeah. publishing a book, uh, a lot of people are going to say, oh, but what about in the age of AI? Well, all the top AI people are publishing books this year. So they know okay. the power of books, yeah. right? Authority, author. Uh, it's very much tied up. Um, I'm a big believer that you don't necessarily try and sell books. You should just give them away. Um, So when I work with executives, we get them to write a book, but then we give away a thousand copies a year. That does wonders. There's something that happens called book magic, where you give away a thousand copies of the book and hundreds of thousands of pounds come in Um, (laughs) (laughs) just magically, uh, which is great. Um, And then uh, signature products. So I'm a big believer in uh, creating products that are signature products like Porsche 911, Fender Stratocaster. Um, so these are the signature products that you need to create, okay. which are going to be the enduring, um, you know, iconic named products that people associate to your brand, the Apple iPhone and iPad. Creating that ecosystem of signature products. Raising profile is the fourth one. Um, I'm a believer that you will probably encounter big opportunities that will um, go ahead if you Google well and not go ahead if you don't Google well. Uh, when someone Googles your name, tends to be three things that happen. could be negative. So you could actually have a situation where you've got the same name as a serial killer in Florida <laughs> <laughs> and um, or nothing. It's tumbleweeds. 
Um, it could be confusing. It could it could be, um, or it could could be negative, as in like people are complaining and you've yeah. done nothing to address it. It could be confusing, as in serial killer, um, or it could be really positive that you look like a key person of influence. In which case, uh, the big deal goes ahead. And then the final one is partnerships. So I don't think we've got time to do everything. We need to partner with those who are good at what they do, and we need to look at those multiplier partnerships where you know three times three is nine and my value times your distribution you make more money because you've got a hot product going through an existing channel i make more money because i've got my hot product going through an existing channel so we both win um so it's this idea of um teaming up and structuring great partnerships and great deals i i love the saying that somebody woke up this morning with the thing that you need so go partner with them. You know, you want yeah. money in the business, someone woke up with that. Yeah. You want yeah. time, someone woke up with free time. You want fame, someone's famous and they want to endorse something. You know, whatever it is you think you would need, yeah. partner. So those are the five Ps. Anyone that wants to find out more about them, they can Google them because I know there'll be loads of stuff on Google. Yeah. Or they can even go and buy the, the book. book. And exactly, buy the book and read it. Uh, it's a good read. Told you it was going to be good. No, I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed recording it. You know, Daniel's a truly remarkable man. He, he seems to see things that others don't. Now, as usual, you're going to find some takeaways and a timeline for this episode on the show notes. You'll find a bridge show notes on the pod platforms, but you'll find full show notes at unicorny.co.uk. I was really taken with Daniel's observation that vitality is a defining characteristic of the best and brightest in business. He called it, and it's a tongue twister, the irreplaceable life force. Who wouldn't want to be that? Key persons of influence, it turns out, are attractors. They have a a gravitational pull that means they can do things others can't. What his book, KPI, seeks to do is help anyone with the diligence to apply his technique develop that gravitational pull. He was clear to point out that the vitality and irreplaceability isn't at a functional level it energizes the whole. And you know, that sounds like the job of a marketer to me, to to energize the whole. Next, we looked at the Hollywood studio model. I'm sure you're already familiar with that. When you think about the flexible resourcing model in functional or process-oriented terms, I hinted at this in the mid-roll, you kind of get in-house agency, offshore and freelance, or a mix of some or all of the other. I think what KPI does is bring a focus to that, though, because at a time when we're all trying to do more with less and you can't really take risks, building a reputation for being a KPI in a particular field is going to bring enormous power to you. But you have to choose your field and then you have to know how to project your power. Equally, if you're trying to build a team to get things done, you are going to favor people who lean into the concept of KPI because they're the ones you're going to trust to be the experts. Now, in the second half of today's show, we lent into the model a little bit more and we looked at the five P's Daniel details in his book. Those are pitch, publish, product, profile and partnership. What struck me most today, and it was an aha moment for me, is the pitch. As you develop your own pitch, you need to be very clear about what ideas or behaviours you want to change in people. When your audience goes to bed, what do you want them to think differently about from their waking state? That's such a simple and clear benchmark for an effective pitch. And... 
you know, that concept to say, am I making someone think differently? And if you're not, change your pitch. That's really powerful. I had to edit out the, there was a long moment of silence after he said that because I was literally lost for words. In the second part of this episode, uh, which is available now on the blog at unicorny.co.uk, or you can wait for it to be published on the platforms next week, we look at 24 assets. While today was about you, 24 assets is about your business. It offers a novel way of thinking about planning, building and exploiting the digital assets you need to build to help your business create value. Daniel also drops a properly mind-blowing metaphor for AI and the impact it's going to have on us all. And that metaphor serves to highlight how important the things we've talked about today are. And by the way, the second part of this episode is no different. Now, remember, if you don't want to wait to listen, you can find it right now on the blog page listed on the show notes. But for now, that's all we have time for. If you've enjoyed the show, why not hit follow? We'd love you to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it does mean an awful lot to us. Or if it's easier for you, please recommend us to a friend or post on LinkedIn tagging at Unicorny. I'm your host, Dom Hawes. Nicola Fairley is the series producer. Laura Taylor McAllister is production assistant. Pete Allen is the editor. And Ornella Weston and me, Dom Hawes, are your writers. You have been listening to Unicorny, which is a Selby Anderson production. This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson, the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selvianderson.com.